The better you understand and manage emotions, your own and those of people around you, the more you build a growing toolkit to help you navigate relationships, change, and disruption. Emotional intelligence is also a key lever for personal and professional success. Want to grow your emotional intelligence? In my flagship online training program, the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence Courses, you can develop and deepen your skill set with the 12 crucial competencies in my emotional intelligence model. You can learn more at DanielGolemanEmotionalIntelligence.com. That's one word, DanielGolemanEmotionalIntelligence.com. And you can use coupon code PODCAST to save $50 on registration. How does money work? How do people make money? Money works like if you have some money and you have everything you need, you could like pay for something you want or save it in a bank. What's your first feeling when you walk into a toy store? Sometimes I like really want something, but sometimes I'm like, nah, I have some stuff at home. Is there such a thing as like having too much money? Yeah, if you have too much money, I think you like kind of get greedy or something. I think it's a bad thing. You think it's bad? Just having an average amount of money, I think is good. Is it possible to not have enough money, to have too little money? Yeah, because if you have too little money, then you might not be able to feed yourself or keep warm in the winter or you might not have a home. But that's what uh, shelters and food banks are for. How do we get shelters and food banks? The city pays for it, but everyone pays a little tax for the city for everyone's benefit. You're listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Daniel Goleman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Hanuman Goleman and Elizabeth Solomon. Hello, Dan. Hey, Dan. Hey, Liz. Hi, Hanuman. In this episode, we're continuing the conversation from the last one with Harvard professor Rebecca Henderson, where she broke down her theory of what it could look like to reinvent capitalism. Up next, we're speaking with Ismail Samad, who's actively working to reinvent a system that can empower his hometown of East Cleveland to build generational wealth within communities of color. Just for context, I don't know if you remember, but the last uh, article I wrote for the newsletter on influence, I cited a project called The Gleanery that was using leftover food scrap. So this is Ismail's, this is his a business that he created in Putney, Vermont. Ismail's interview reminds me a little bit of not just what it is to reinvent capitalism, but what it is to reinvent gentrification. And I think he points so beautifully to kind of the paradox here that, you know, we want communities in which the schools get better, in which there are options, in which there's housing, in which there's nice places to live and parks and access to outdoor spaces and all of these things. And yet, what we often see in the pattern of gentrification is that the communities that occupy that space that have called these spaces home for so long get forced out right as as the power of capitalism comes in and jacks up the prices and so 
I'm just wondering, what does it look like to go into a community and ensure that as new businesses are being built, that the people that live there actually have ownership over those businesses as new buildings are being erected, that they actually have ownership over that property too. And I think this brings up a really interesting discussion around the difference between having money to meet basic needs, like have food on the table, et cetera, and actually being in a position to begin to build and secure generational wealth. You know, it reminds me of a saying that behind most every great fortune, there's a great crime. And of course, uh, America itself and the capitalist system in America was based on two great crimes. One was slavery, and the other was the appropriation of lands from Native Americans. Counterbalancing these crimes and fostering opportunity for all people and all communities gets to the heart of what Ismail addresses in this interview. Let's dive in. Ismail Samad is a native of East Cleveland, Ohio. He's a social entrepreneur, enterprise developer, and an expert in closed-loop food systems. While studying environmental biology in college and working in some of the top restaurants in Cleveland, Ismail developed a passion for the culinary arts. He opened his first cafe, Crust and Crumbs, at the age of 23. After relocating to Vermont, he became deeply involved in the farm-to-table movement, which gave him insight into the impact of food waste and created in him a resolve to find creative solutions to solve the problem. His newest project, Loiter, focuses on developing urban farming and economic opportunities for East Clevelanders. The goal of Loiter is that East Clevelanders will own every single part of the supply chain. Loiter is also invested in hosting spaces for community conversations so that people from multiple communities and constituencies can come together to discuss the big issues. Let's welcome Ismail Samad. This is um, such a, a great opportunity to be, be on this with you. So I got to also always start with thanks and, and gratitude um, to you and, and for the creator for putting me in spaces to actually, you know, you know, advance the work that I think is, you know, germane to, to, to the world. You know, I hear of, um, two really core themes um, that rest at the foundation of your work. And one is about eliminating waste in the system. Um, and the other is about opening up access. And I'm wondering if for our listeners, you could just explain briefly what some of these terms mean, like closed loop food system. What is a closed loop food system? And what is the value of that from both an economic standpoint and in terms of um, paving the way for equity and inclusion and access? It's kind of like this ground zero reality of, of, of how can we build, you know, something from from what is deemed as, you know, trash. And so that you've got this kind of eliminating waste that that is a theme there, too. That's like looking at what people deem as being discarded and not valuable. But it, there's so much value in the things that we habitually discard. And that includes that. That's not just with food. That's with communities. That's with culture. That's with opportunity that's with all of the things that happen in in disinvested communities so just really looking at like that wasteland reality of 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 what what extractive capitalism does so you go to the wasteland you say okay what do we do with this with all of these things that are possible 
you say, well, people have to eat and people need to earn and people need spaces of conviviality um, because they don't exist in our communities. Um, at the same time, there we cannot build, you know, things that are going to perpetuate the very thing that put us here in the first place. So there is this there is an opportunity for us to say there's available plots of land in East Cleveland proper or in any disinvested communities. It could be rural, urban, wherever. And you want to and because I'm an entrepreneur, I think of this as very um, like, what are the opportunities to create sustainability within the context, you know, of, of social good and a, a more inclusive and equitable version of capitalism? So if the opportunity in the entrepreneurial space is, say, tea, right, um, because we know that that herbal teas are going to grow over the next, you know, five to 10 years, and I think it's like 12%, which is a huge increase. Um, how do we provide an opportunity for communities that have not had the opportunity to take a part in, you know, these kind of emerging economies um, and different market opportunities? So you, you would plant a seed of, of a raspberry as an example. And if you're thinking about a closed loop, you want to say, okay, I've got a seed. How do I ensure that everything that goes into that and everything that is produced is optimized and resourced properly um, in a way that is regenerative in nature. So the seed grows to produce uh, leaves and berries. We want to make sure that the leaves don't go to waste. We want to make sure we capture those, turn them into raspberry leaf tea, um, all of us. And this is something that we typically don't do in larger food systems because all we want is the berry because it's the most valuable to receiving the highest dollar in the marketplace. So you've got all of these things that could actually provide economic opportunities for the disadvantaged community. So if you create that reality, all of a sudden you've captured the value along the chain um, of events that happen in growing that seed of a raspberry. So that's just one example. And then as berries now fall off or they're too, too ripe, how do you ensure that you capture the value in things that are not perfectly, you know, pretty or things that people that we as consumers need to see um, in order for us to to buy because of the, the forces of consumers and to say a berry must be this size in order for it to fit in this container and it must not not squish this much or whatever it is. So um, we capture those things to make sure we we can do, you know, raspberry vinegar, you know, to make sure that that's an opportunity there. Um, and what that does it makes sure that the water and energy and time and care you put into that, all of the value is captured, you know, with all the different um, elements that are produced from that initial growing of the seed. One of the things Rebecca was talking about, and, you know, this is, I think, really part of what you're talking about when you're talking about extractive capitalism. She was talking about, you know, we have these innovations that have evolved over the years and around these innovations are things we could call externalities, right? So like she gave the example of the car. I mean, the car was an amazing innovation. People could stay dry. You don't need to feed the horses, et cetera. But then there's all of these kind of external consequences, um, which I think are, are obvious to many of us here of, of the car, right? Including the environmental impact. And so part of her conversation was shifting to a mindset of understanding the real cost of something. Um, like being able to see the benefit in an innovation, but also seeing the real cost. And 
I've had the honor and pleasure, Ismail, of sitting down with you a couple times and having some um, incredibly illuminating conversations. And we started to get into this conversation about um, what is the real cost in the way that we approach um, some of these efforts to revitalize neighborhoods or bring new business into neighborhoods. You know, it seems like a really good plan, a really good idea at the outset, but there are all these factors in how resources get owned and um, split up amongst the community that really undermine a deeper sense of equity and inclusion. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Man, yes, there's a there's a lot to say in there. Um, because I guess it, I caution to, to talk to, um, I was just talking with someone on, on, on the island. Um, and I think the, the number that was stated to me that only 10 businesses in Oak Bluffs are owned by, by Black folks. Let's just, I'm just going to pause really quick, just because I want to give our listeners a little bit of um, context, because we're, <laughs> we have a shared language. So um uh, Ismail and I first met on the island of Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and so when we're talking about the island, we're talking about Martha's Vineyard. Um, and Oak Bluffs is a predominantly African-American community on Martha's Vineyard, um, has long been, I mean, decades and decades, a destination spot for um, families of color. Yeah, no, perfect. Yeah, sometimes I, I, I go without providing context. So it's good, it's good to have a team around me that says, whoa, so I appreciate that. So, so no, I, I, so yeah, I, so the, the fact that we are, like you, like you stated, the fact that, that, that black culture is celebrated, um, in Oak Bluffs and we don't own the, the majority of the transactions that are celebrating that very culture means that that reality contributes to exclusionary practices by leveraging the emotions and the purchasing power of a group, right? And so in order to maintain that culture and actually to create paths to generational wealth, we need to acknowledge that and figure out pathways for ownership to remain in the hands of the very people who are kind of, you know, the driving force for economic um, mobility and, 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 and generational wealth for others. And so that is a driving force for some of the conversation that we were, that we're having currently if we have some of the structures that that habitually come into our neighborhoods, one of which are, and I mean, I, I'm very open about like, there are challenges and difficulties and flaws in every single human and every single structure that a human creates. So this is not an indictment of an organization or a system. It is just the fact that we have to look at flaws in order to get better. And so a flaw in, in CDCs, Community Development Corporations, and CDFIs, is that they own the land to do good work in our communities. And these are nonprofits, typically, right? And they end up doing really good work, opening black and brown businesses, but own the resource that will actually create conditions for systemic change, which is generational wealth and generational ownership of spaces. And so without acknowledging that and trying to create pathways for ownership to happen 
in changing communities uh, for, for ownership to land in the hands in the people that have suffered and th through all of the disinvestment, through all of the kind of blatant exclusionary realities that happen before the community is shovel ready for a new reality, um, then we're going to just perpetuate the very thing. And that's how displacement happens. And it becomes systemic and becomes like the, the world that we challenge and we advocate against like anti-gentrification efforts they could we could we don't have to be anti-gentrification we can be pro you know pro current resident pathways to ownerships we don't have to be adversarial we can actually welcome in a new reality given the fact that we've looked at the flaws within a system that has been doing their best to support um, but the sometimes the, the the efforts that we take have you know root causes that need to be critiqued and then adjusted. It's interesting. I think this is such a beautiful point about like um, gentrification or um, looking at a community sort of increase the amount of businesses, arts, culture. Um, you know the the sale of the price of homes going up, all of these things that happen with gentrification are not in themselves bad. The problem exists that a lot of the gentrification, particularly in pockets in the United States, is still rooted in like a deep um, pattern of white colonialism. And so, you know, white communities coming in and displacing communities of color, right, because of what we're talking about, which is this like uh, overlapping of systemic racism and socioeconomic status and all of these ways that these realities come together. And I just want to highlight again what you said, because I think it's a really um, important thing to understand, which is like the difference between having money, having wealth, and being in a position to secure a legacy because those are all three very different realities, right? And as you're talking about these community efforts in which, you know, people say, okay, we want, you know, communities of color to open businesses, but ultimately, you know, we own the buildings and the real estate developments where your businesses sit. And so the power still doesn't actually lie in your hands because it's, it's similar to, to having a job, right? I mean, your employment can be taken away at any point, um, by, by the person that's employing you. And um, I, I just want to hold that up because I think understanding, again, the differences between financial security, wealth, and legacy. And I'm wondering if there's anything else um, you want to say about that and, and how capitalism as it is has sort of failed to understand the differences between those three things, or rather... <laughs> doesn't openly discuss. <laughs> actually, it, it actually accepts it and celebrates the fact that it works, right? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Because it works so well, um, you know, we, you know, success is a dangerous thing because you just kind of like keep doing it, right? Why would you change, right? So, and that's just who, that's how we're oriented as humans, right? You kind of, you know, those habits become kind of muscle memory, right? So I think right now we just kind of have this, this, you know, um, rinse, lather, repeat kind of thing when it comes to how things go down. And we just accept it as, you know, hey, that's just what it is. And so because we all just say that's just what it is, you have to look at the two types of people 
who are saying that's just what it is. Or the people saying, oh, that's just what it is, right? That's one burden and the other, yeah, that's what is what it is. I love that distinction between like a blasé acceptance and like an excitement, right? Because the system's benefiting you in some way. You're like, that's what it is. And it's great for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting. Yeah. And I learned this through, through, through some of my work and technical assistance and trying to help create black and brown businesses and women-owned businesses um, with, you know, great support from philanthropy to say, hey, we are going to make sure that we create black and brown and immigrant and women-owned businesses. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm not, that, that should definitely continue. At the same time, the next level up is those businesses are now paying, you know, rent to an owner of the property that they are operating their business in. And as a community changes, that value now goes up and that business that is currently paying in that property owners, that landlord's um, pocket, as the community changes, the rent goes up, right? And so if this business can't scale to the changing neighborhoods, which typically that's, this is how it happens. This is why businesses that are currently there end up moving out because there's new money and new investments that drive up, you know, the, the, the neighborhood value. Uh, and so now those businesses close down and then we can bring in other businesses that can actually meet the demands of what the new real estate hikes you know, just created. And those typically are, you know, businesses that have, like you said, have had access to wealth or the ability to leverage property to go out and get debt capital or investment to start higher netting businesses, right? So if if we can shift the focus on on investing in infrastructure first and investing in the people there, um, to get them ready to be a part of the new development, this is a way that we can shift it. We can say, hey, there is wonderful talent and culture that is there that needs to be invested in. And how do we create you know, a pathway for those realities and dreams and cultures and businesses to be celebrated in our development plan? So now you've got this, this, this kind of, we're working together to, to redevelop and reimagine what our communities could be. And who doesn't want to collaborate when you have this kind of open dialogue about what the needs are of the current community and, you know, the desire for us to move into a new space. Like sometimes people do want to move around and say, oh man, I'm tired of moving here and I want to move here. But, but we can't let that desire, um, you know, continue to stifle the beauty of community life and culture that already exists and needs to be invested in to, to, to celebrate in a way that's just going to continue to add value to our multicultural country that we have. I feel like you're starting to articulate this, but I want to ask it um, in a pretty straightforward way of, of what does reinventing capitalism mean or look like to you? And what are um, some of the mindset shifts that need to occur in order to um, develop new systems? Oh man. So it's just a small question. I mean, it's really, it's just a small, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So it's this thing that's this convenient stigma that exists as here's an example, a black athlete, you know, just makes a whole bunch of money. Right. And then there's this, 
this kind of mockery of the individual when he quote unquote, he blew all of his money, right. That he got, right. This is kind of like this convenient, you know, um, you know, reality that, that is talked about. It's like, Oh my God, he blew all his money. At the same time, there's, there's forces that are, you know, encouraging all of us to blow all of our money. Right. It's actually like what we, what the system needs. We cannot, we can't actually, um, have our system without consumerism and without the celebration of exuberance, right? And, and opulence and, and all of those things. We can't stand up this version of capitalism without it. So he actually didn't blow his money. He actually did exactly what he was supposed to do in the context of capitalism. So that, number one, is shifting that framing to say we are all consumers and until all of our dollars as consumers can go to other people, then guess what? That athlete's dollars, when he blew them, quote unquote, if he blew them in his own community with his friends and family and other black folks that, though, that, were, that were holding his wealth, it would come right back around to him, right? So that is the issue of extractive capitalism. It's not an equitable distribution of the capital that has been sent out into the world for it to be reaccumulated by the holders of it. So if we don't figure out a way to house community wealth, you know, in, in, in black and brown communities, that's the example that I can give you right there. Yeah, this this brings me back. I want to ask you if you want to um, share with our audience a little bit about, you know, you just moved back to East Cleveland, your your hometown, um, after living on the East Coast for a while. And I just um, I I would love to hear you share a little bit about the efforts that you have underway there and the plans that you have um, and this effort you opened called Loiter. Yeah. Um... Thanks for asking. And, and, and I think now lo- loiter is something, even with that name that I have to, I was talking to my sister who co-founded it with me um, because we're writing, you know, proposals and things like that around loiter. And then we have to remind ourselves that <clears throat> loiter is a very provocative name. And so to not contextualize it when I'm talking about it for the first time to people is actually extremely harmful because it leaves so much out there for people to say, well, what? Oh my God. Right. Loiter. Oh my, you know, there, there's this, there's this negative, you know, connotation with loiter, which is intentionally provocative um, because to loiter in our own communities and in our own black communities, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it kind of challenges um, what needs to happen to even create community, right? You have to be able to just hang out with people, just kind of aimlessly walk, right? To meander around with folks without a cause, right? You got, you have to be able to do that in safe spaces. You have to be able to do that. you know, after you go shopping, you want to like, you know, just lean up against a wall and see who you run into, which is what happens in other established, you know, communities. Um, but, uh, when you have this, this reality of people who are owning businesses in black and brown communities that are not from the community, and you slap a sign up that says no loitering, that means that you are actually against the development, you know, of community spaces. Uh, and so 
when we came up with this word, we said, no, actually loitering is a necessity. And the reclaiming of that word, right, which, of course, there's a historical context with, with the use of that word to keep, keep, uh, keep people out of spaces because we don't fit a particular social construct. And it became a means to arrest people uh, just by saying, hey, look, you out, you out, you out. But loiter is seeking to, to create spaces, you know, for, for a city. As I mentioned before, it's the poorest city in the, in the state. It's three and a half square miles. It's got about 17,000 people who live there. And 95% of us who live there, you know, are black and currently making around $21,000 a year on average. That's what the census says. And then um, this past, uh, you know, primary election, uh, only 1,200 people came out to vote, right? So you're talking about a community that does not, you know, see any value in the political process, any value in in their community, um, aside from a place for basic needs, like I got shelter and I got a school that, that needs support and I got a couple things, I got a library that I can use, but it, it, it is not, you know, it, it, it's not a, uh, a city that I'm just thinking about the realities and I'm kind of like getting at a loss for words because that is, if you drive through, I think, I don't think you would say a word either. Whenever I drive through with people for the first time, you know, it's, it's silent. Um, so, uh, with that reality, what, what we're doing is we're just saying, Hey, we want to make sure that we invest in the people there first. Um, and because there's elements of the work that needs to happen that require, uh, you know, our mindset to be right, you know, to be able to, to bring in, you know, support, um, you know, some, we, we sometimes just, I mean, I was thinking about how my, my, my good friend was, you know, was a lifeguard when we were growing up. And he said, listen, sometimes like if the, the person is drowning and they're flailing away and, you know, they're going to endanger me, I got to kind of knock them out, right? <laughs> In order to like save their life, right? Um, and outside of the, that context, you would never, ever do that. But in order for us both to be safe, sometimes we need to do some drastic things, you know, to, to, to help, you know, people that we love and care. And we just need to figure out what is that knockout punch, um, you know, for, for each Cleveland, for us all to, to move in the right direction together. So we can begin the, the next wave of investment, which should be infrastructure. But if we don't deal with the realities of of the community first, we're just waiting on the sword of Democles to like, you know, come. And that sword of Democles is gentrification and we will be displaced. That is just the reality. So what we're dealing with is how do we get ready uh, for, you know, for the development that is sure to come because it always comes when you have, you know, large developments happening in the, in the adjacent neighborhood um, and you have nowhere else to go. So you can ignore the realities of East Cleveland, you know, until it's no longer convenient for you to.
So now I think it's no longer convenient. And now those previous bad neighbors have to now turn to East Cleveland to say, oh, I see you now, but I only want this property. I only want that building, but I don't want your people because I got a culture that I'm coming in with. So that lawyer is really trying to create spaces within East Cleveland and, and, sh- and be a model for how other pre-gentrifying efforts in, you know, in the country can say, hey, we, we, we know it's coming. We do need economic development dollars, but that sh- should not um, be above uh, the economic justice realities that, that need to occur first. So that's what Lawyer is about. You know, I've never been to East Cleveland, but as you're talking, I'm just um, aware of the ripple effect of not um, having a community in which people in the community, again, like own the businesses, are hanging out on the sidewalks, are are loitering around, you know, getting to build community with one another, which is that when people aren't connecting and people aren't out in the streets and people aren't kind of making noise together, then it's pretty easy for someone to come in and sort of usurp or take over the community, not only because they might have money and they might have wealth, but because they've had the opportunity to become a unified front in the context of a community that has been primarily um, divided in some way or, or separated from one another. And so this link between having a sort of economic stake within the community and actually being community um, feels really poignant. You mentioned earlier, like this colonial view of like, oh, it's mine for the taking, right? That like, oh, you know what? There's nobody here, right? Or there's a culture here that, you know, you know, I can tell that there was culture that existed here, but after all of the wars and ravaging that happened, I guess the small, the last little remnants of culture that are here can just be swept away as well. And so there are still remnants of culture in East Cleveland that need to be illuminated and need to be brought to the table to inform the next wave of, of development. And so it's trying to make sure, and I'll say that it's really just prioritizing that economic justice over the status quo realities of how economic development works to foster, you know, more community focused enterprises, um, you know, inviting people into what, you know, what I know and what a lot of my friends know when they come over my house, black hospitality is beautiful, Right. When people come, they're like, oh, my God, I love your mom, blah, 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 blah. So these are things that, like, to to not be able to celebrate Black hospitality in an all-Black community is a disservice to the world. So to not want to create that and harness, you know, that wonderful, you know, cultural um, experience that is housed in an all-Black reality and not want to invest in it and not want to support it, that just means that as a society. We've just got a lot more work to do around how we invest, you know, and how we support and how, you know, we just acknowledge the impact of the previous decades of this is more extractive version of investment. So, Ismail, I want to thank you because you just... um... I just featured a little bit about your project, The Gleanery, in an article I wrote on the topic of influence, which is um, one of the competencies in uh, Daniel Goldman's framework of emotional intelligence. 
And I'm just aware that, you know, throughout your career and, and in your life, um, the term that came to mind was like, you run in a lot of different circles, right? You, um, you have a lot of different contacts um, from different backgrounds, different races, different socioeconomic statuses. You have interest across industries um, and topic areas. And so I'm curious to know, as you talk to people about your vision for East Cleveland, how do you sort of bridge all of these worlds and create a sense of understanding between all the various uh, stakeholders that you're interacting with? No, yeah, you nailed it. You nailed it. Because we, man, like there's this, there is, I was recently reading an article on Harvard Business Review about, you know, you know, kind of like, you know, code switching and uh, that sort of thing. And, um, and I have my opinions about the article, but it, it, it had some really good nuggets in there. Um, and we live in a we live in a world as as, as minorities as, as going into a lot of spaces that we're not seeing, right? And that's just the reality, right? So, so you, when you when, when when that's the reality, we have to deal with that emotional toll of trying to say, hmm, oh, this isn't for me, but I can grab this. Okay, cool, I got that, right? So just kind of, you know, like even in a transactional way. Right, walking into a, a grocery store that that we weren't at the table to design, right? Because you know, hey, I'm not going to like, you know, put a, you know, you know, any whatever whatever type of enterprise in a in a disinvested community because it won't work, right? You know, well, it it, it would work, and it just you just gotta understand the culture and figure out how, you know how to market towards it. And so to answer your question, I'm just realizing this myself. Uh, about how do I navigate this? How do I not come like, like, like I, I have a GED. I never finished high school. Right. Um, I was homeschooled. Right. Um, so I, my parents were like, Hey, look, and then I was like, homeschooling isn't working. Can I just freaking get my GED? Yeah, sure. All right. As long as you want to do something cool. Blah, blah, blah. So I was kind of like what I did and I'm navigating this space. I'm talking to you and like, Oh my God. I'm like, man, this is like, there's this reality of like, wow, maybe if you caught me 10 years ago, I would have been extremely nervous and extremely kind of like feeling like, Oh my God, like in this academic space of EQ and like, do I fit now? I'm just like, Hey, whatever. Like my reality is what it is. And we're just world, blah, blah, blah. But, to be able to convey that to the people of East Cleveland who have my exact same reality, right? And is, is a challenge for me uh, because of, like you mentioned, if I've been in this reality of this extremely liberal East Coast, um, the advantage of being at the, you know, in boardrooms with the former president of Trader, Trader Joe's, the former CEO of Stop and Shop, right? You know, like in these conversations of how do we address these systemic issues around hunger and food waste and and have, and and just being on the island and like, you know, critiquing, you know, um, you know, civility and things like that, you know, with 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 other academics and 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 then that's that reality that I have. Um, but to be able to go back. East Cleveland right now and not feel like I am, you know, some savior folk. There's this whole thing around, oh, I don't want to be a white savior. Well, first off, like you don't have to be, don't have to be white to be a savior. I don't want to feel like I'm a freaking savior, 
right? Like, and, and that's just my personal thing. And it's harder for me to not feel that way because of the intricacies and nuances in the community that, that, that exists. And so I have to try and figure out how do I reconnect with people that I grew up with? I'll tell you, I'll leave you with a story. I, I can't, I, um, gentlemen, I, I grew up with as a teenager, as a kid, um, this is maybe about three, four years ago. Um, and you know how we're used to when you see people you haven't seen in a while or you want to catch up and you say, what have you been up to? And you kind of like give them this list of like, oh, I've been doing this. I was kicking it here. I was on this panel and it did blah, blah, blah. And you're telling this whole world of like great experiences. Right. Um, and so I did that just out of habit because that's kind of what I was doing. And I asked him, what have you been up to? Right. Uh, and he just looked at me and said, man, the same old thing, man. You know, like, what do you mean? Like inferring, like, what do you mean? What have I been up to? Like, you just offended me with your whole list of stuff that you've been doing, right? Know your freaking audience, right? And so that was a very powerful moment for me to say, okay, I'm not getting it, right? I'm not understanding who I'm talking to. Right. And that was it, it, it was a moment that I had to like, I'm kind of getting a little choked up because I, I it was very difficult for me to 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 see myself as someone who would do that to someone who I cared about. Right. Um, and so that's the reality that I'm in right now, because these opportunities that that, that I've had have been reserved for a select few. And I got to figure out how to get the voices from East Cleveland and the experience of, of, of East Cleveland to, you know, to, to, to make it impactful for the people who have, who have been there toiling away with the realities of all, of all these systems that we're all working, you know, to, to dismantle. And I, I want to make sure that what I'm offering and what I'm giving back is not some version of me trying to like be some, like hero to, to the hood. Like, it's not what I want to do. Right. Um, so that, that's kind of like what I'm navigating right now. And so one of the things that we're trying to do with, with the, with the library, if you don't mind me saying this piece, but, um, with, with the East Cleveland public library is trying to create spaces for this conversation to happen in East Cleveland from the library. Um, so we become synonymous with provocative conversation about economic justice, about spatial justice, about the people who are here centering the conversation, you know, not in these spaces of academia, in the space of the actual places where it's going down. So if we can do that, and that's our goal is to put together the, this platform to, to talk clearly and succinctly and unapologetically about this with people in my network and my and our collective networks to talk real with the people and then and then we now become the source of the information right because our live realities are, are are fueling some of the conversation you know it's the the topic of discussion but we're not the ones discussing it I'm so grateful. There's so much in what you just said. And I just want to like, um, I have my hand to my heart right now, but I, I just uh, am feeling this piece of like what it is to be uh, in the role of a bridge in the world. Right. And, and the kind of 
sometimes in playing that role, right? This feeling of like, I don't fully belong anywhere and having to, as you alluded to, like code switch and like figure out your audience in any given moment, but also a deep awareness of that like uh, martyr, savior, victim triangle um, that is like so deeply a part of human consciousness and so deeply a part of our history and just your efforts to be really conscious of stepping out of that paradigm and building new systems that are centered around a deep, deep form of listening, which means bringing everyone into the room um, to really be part of the same conversation. So I just want to really hold that up because um, that's not small work. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, thanks. This, is, um, this has been a great, great hour for me. I love this because what, what Ismail is saying is that an entrepreneurial attitude that looks at what could be rather than what is, you know, the raspberry and the container and the produce section is as the end product, but rather, oh yeah, the leaves, we could make tea, we could make vinegar. Thinking out of the box uh, makes so many things possible and doing it in the context of keeping it in the community, helping people in the community, I think that's fantastic. It makes me think of Greystone Bakery which was started in the Bronx and decided it would hire anybody, including felons, which was very important, ex-felons, uh, if they could bake instead of not letting them even try out. And it's made a huge difference in the lives of the people who work there. But it meant uh, breaking out of the box of assumptions, the system uh, as it's been, and reinventing it for the benefit of people locally, particularly? While we might understand that we are connected to the rest of the world, it's often difficult for us to see clearly what those connections are. And this to me is a, an argument for raising those connections up because going on the raspberry thing, if you grow raspberries, but you don't want raspberry stock, there is somebody who might want raspberry stock, but they might not know that you have a bunch of excess raspberry stock. And this reminds me of there are some great movements happening in the industrial world around um, reimagining the materials that we uh, work with, like cement. What are the, what are ways to create cement that uh, I remember about a decade or so ago, Dan, you met somebody in Mexico who was involved with cement made from nutshells or something. There was some some nutshells that were excess from a factory production around that area. Yeah, cement is one of the uh, really bad polluters, and it's everywhere. <laughs> Uh, what I'm interested in now is not only using uh, materials that are natural waste products like nutshells, but also cement. This is a new development, cement that captures carbon instead of emitting it. Uh, I think that kind of reinventing the way uh, we think about a product is more and more important or will be going into the future.
what that's doing is bringing in the uh, externalities. It's addressing the externalities in a positive way, in a, in a proactive way. Exactly. This reminds me a lot of a um, series that we did in season one called Reinventing Everything, where we started off by talking with Scott Kling, who's an expert in supply chain. And then we talked to Jake Takif, a regenerative farmer, about his farming practices, which involved thinking about, you know, how can he raise animals in order to um, give back to the regeneration of the land? I feel like I'm hopeful that this is becoming a more widespread mentality of thinking about how can we use every part of something and how can we create a system that gives back as much as it extracts. Ismael is a leader. He makes things happen. While his leadership style is all his own, you can see the many ways that emotional intelligence is present in his work. He weaves a clear-eyed self-awareness and the kindness of empathy with the wisdom of organizational awareness and adaptability. If you're interested in how emotional intelligence is integral to leadership, check out our book, What Makes a Leader?, It's a collection of Dan Goleman's articles from the Harvard Business Review, including his best-selling article that gives the book its title, What Makes a Leader. You can find the book in our store at keystepmedia.com slash shop. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Soleil, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Ismail Samad. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Play Pelagic by Little Glass Men, and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.